Hello and welcome to Mr. Sorensen's weekly world history podcast. I'm Mr. Sorensen, your host. And so we are starting, uh, this unit is going to be on ancient Rome. And so we began, um, like we do pretty much every unit, with uh, talking about the geography of Rome and why it was a good place to start a city and eventually the civilization. So the city of Rome is located in central Italy, which, remember, Italy is the country shaped like a boot. Um, it's on a river, on the Tiber River. Remember the stuff the uh, river provides. It provides uh, drinking water, water for crops, um, transportation for travel. Um, whenever a river floods, it leaves behind fresh soil. and get fish from the river, water for cleaning, bathing, washing. All that kind of stuff. So, uh, this is another one of the cities that are founded near a river. It's also um, near the Mediterranean Sea, but not right on it. It's about 15 miles up the Tiber River from the Mediterranean Sea. So, it's near enough to sea to trade, but not too close where they um, are easier to attack. So, uh, the city of Rome itself is founded on seven hills. And uh, remember, those seven hills are going to provide some protection because it's hard to fight if someone attacks uphill. And then also, they're higher up, so they'll be able to see people coming from a ways away. Um, and trust me, if you ever go to Rome, bring your walking shoes because it seems like you're always walking up or downhill. Uh, another good thing about its location is it's at a point on the Tiber River where it's easy to cross over the river. That's going to allow people to um, easily get from one side to the other, and so it makes a good uh, point to stop and trade. They also have the Apennine Mountains running behind it, uh, which is going to provide protection from being attacked from behind. Uh, so overall, Rome is just a really good place for a location for a city um, if you want it to be successful. So remember, uh, we talked about the legend, and episode one of this unit is about the legend of the founding of Rome and the twin brother Romulus and Remus, and Romulus becomes the, um, kills his brother and becomes the first king of Rome. And so Rome establishes a monarchy in 753 BC. Remember, a monarchy is a government that is ruled by a king or queen, so one person has all the power. And the first king was, of Rome was Romulus. Rome has a few kings after that, but turns out the Roman people don't really like being told what to do by one person. So they overthrow the king and start what's called a republic in 509 BC. Rome's last king was named Tarquin. So we then went into uh, the social structure. There's basically three levels of Roman society. At the top were the patricians. The patricians were the wealthy landowners. They're the ones that came from the very uh, old Roman families. Um, they are going to be the only ones that can hold political office in early Rome. So all the power are going to be with those families. Remember, the patrician class is only 5% of the citizens of Rome. So very small numbers. Um, and they often wore what was called togas. Underneath them, which is 95% of the um, citizens of Rome, were the plebeians. 
And they did all kinds of stuff. They owned small farms. They were shopkeepers. They were artisans. They did all kinds of stuff. Um, and plebeians were city citizens but couldn't hold public office in early Rome. So they had the right to vote. They just couldn't actually be voted into office. They often wore tunics. Remember, tunics were kind of like the long shirt down to your knees. And remember, it was illegal for people from different social classes to marry each other. So the patri a patrician could not marry a plebeian and vice versa. And the reason for that is if a plebeian and a patrician have a child, is that child a plebeian or a patrician? It wouldn't be accepted by either group, really. So they wanted to keep those separated. Um, the last group was slaves. And Rome had a lot of slaves, um, but they didn't have any rights and could be bought and sold, so they were not citizens of Rome. So uh, Rome's new government that I mentioned was they had a republic. And a republic is a government in which the citizens don't vote for the laws like they did in democracy. In Athens, the citizens voted for their leaders and their laws. But in a republic, the citizens vote for representatives, and those representatives make the laws for them. So, for example, um, the United States is a republic. So the citizens don't generally make the laws in the United States. We vote for our members of Congress, so uh, senators and House representatives, and they make the laws for us, to represent us. So uh, as voters, our power is in who we vote for. We should vote, we are supposed to vote for somebody that uh, has the same beliefs as we do, so that hopefully when they're making decisions for us, they make the right ones in our eyes. Um, so the Romans are gonna have the same system, same kind of system where they vote, the citizens vote for representatives and those representatives are gonna make laws. So uh, the Patricians are going to have total political power in early Rome, and the plebeians aren't going to be very happy about that. So uh, they threaten to walk out, and they actually do walk out of the city of Rome, and they set up camp outside the city uh, to try to force the patricians to give them some say in government, some, some sort of power. And um, the patricians look around, and they realize uh, we can't do this without them. So they um, decide to give in a little bit to the plebeians. One of the things they give in on is uh, writing down the laws. So the Romans agree to uh, give, in the middle of the forum, they wrote down, they had the laws written down, the basic laws called the 12 tables. That way that plebeians would actually know if they broke the law because they would be there for everybody to see and they couldn't be easily changed without um, anybody noticing. So that's one of the things the plebeians wanted. Um, the uh, Romans had three branches of government, just like us. Uh, an executive branch, which... Hello and welcome to another episode of Mr. Sorensen's Weekly World History Podcast. It has been a busy week podcasting and in social studies class this week. Um, we're going to go back a little bit because um, we didn't have a quiz last week. So um, we'll start by talking about the difference between patricians and plebeians. Remember, 
The patricians were the wealthy landowners. They had the old family names. Um, could trace their roots back to uh, beginning of the Roman um, beginning of Rome, and um, they were they wore togas. Remember, the patricians are the only ones that could hold a public office in early Rome. The senators were patricians. Um, all the key positions pretty much were patricians. Remember, if they if they weren't a patrician and they weren't a slave, they were plebeian. So plebeians could be farmers, they could be owned businesses, um, artisans, shopkeepers. Um, they were citizens, but they couldn't hold public office. So they are going to have the right to vote in early in the early Roman Republic, but they're not going to be able to vote for themselves. They have to vote for patricians, and they mostly wore tunics. And remember, people from the same uh, from different social classes could not marry each other. So a patrician couldn't marry a plebeian and vice versa, or a plebeian couldn't marry a patrician. So next we'll focus on the Roman government. Uh, after Rome gets rid of its king, um, they start a government called the Republic. And a Republic is a type of government in which the citizens vote for representatives who vote for laws, like us. So, um, Compare that to a democracy like in Athens where the people voted for every law. And that would take forever So, in, in such a big society. So it is going to be, uh, we'll vote, like today we vote for people in the United States called congressmen who make the laws for us. Uh, remember, the plebeians did get some rights from the patricians after they um, protested. Um the plebeians walked out of the city of Rome and said they wouldn't come back unless they got some rights. So one of the things they got is the patricians agreed to write down the basic laws on big tablets in the forum, the big meeting place in Rome. And those are going to be called the 12 tables. That way the plebeians knew the laws and they couldn't just be changed on them um, without them knowing. So, looking at the structure of the Roman government, the Roman Republic, uh, it had three branches, just like ours. Uh, the executive branch had two consuls who were patricians. They were kind of like their presidents, um, but they had two of them. They were in charge of the government. They ran the government. They headed the military, and uh, remember, they only served for one year. So, they limited their term in office so that... Nobody could get too much power. The Romans were scared of somebody becoming a king. Um, and so uh, they only served for one year, and then they couldn't run again for 10 years. So this is, uh, again, the Vale of Very Wealthy Patricians. And these guys were kind of like their president, but they had two of them, which can be a problem if they disagree with each other. Uh, the next branch is the legislative branch. And there were two groups in the legislative branch. Uh, the Senate, who is by far the most powerful group in the Roman Republic. These are where all the patricians, the, they were made up of 300 patricians. And they um, proposed laws, uh, declared war, approved building programs. And um, they were, usually the consuls would come from the Senate. Um, and so this is a very powerful group. Uh, one of the other things the plebeians got was the Assembly of Centuries, which was made up of about 197 plebeians. And they elected some important officials, um, 
they would be the ones that chose the Praetors, which we'll talk about in a moment, and the consuls, but then they couldn't actually be one of them. Only patricians could be them. Um, the judicial branch, the judges branch, uh, were the Praetors, and in the United States we have the Supreme Court. Uh, they interpret laws and served as judges, and they served for only two years. Um, there's some problems with the Roman Republic, though. There's some things that they didn't take care of that they probably should have. Um, one of the things that kept on happening is Rome is gaining more territory um, through uh, wars like the Punic Wars, where they fought Carthage for control over trade in the Mediterranean Sea. Um, one of the things that they had trouble with is... Um, Rome gained, the more slaves they got. And then the rich people would get take these slaves and they would have them work their farm, their big farms called Latifundia. And um, plebeians were working that those jobs and then they're going to lo totally lose their jobs. And these guys didn't have much money anyway um, because the farmers are going to, these big farm owners are going to, have slaves doing the work so they don't have to pay somebody. Um, so the patricians are getting wealthier because they're not having to pay people to work their farms. And the um, plebeians are getting poorer because they're losing their jobs. And these uh, plebeians would leave the farms because they lost their jobs and they would head to the city. And so um, some people had to try to figure out a way. They want to try to figure out a way to make it where the plebeians could find work. Um, and so, uh, Two guys in particular, Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus, who were patricians, um, they ca actually cared about the plebeians and tried to help them. Uh, one of the things they wanted to do is take some of the public land, land that was owned by the Republic, and split it up in, uh, amongst the plebeians so that they could have a small plot of land so they could support their family. Uh, the patricians don't want to give up that land. In fact, they want it for themselves. Um, and... Um, so both Tiberius and guys, Gracchus, are murdered. Uh, that's how far patricians were willing to go to stop the changes. Um, the patricians don't want to give up the land. They don't want to help the plebeians. They want to keep it all for themselves. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer. Another problem that ends up happening is has to do with the Roman army. At, the t at this time of the Roman Republic, in around 500 B.C., um, Almost anybody who was wealthy enough could have their own army. And what would happen is um, a person would buy or pay for and trade their own army. And then the Senate would ask that person to use their army to go fight Rome's battles. And so the army is not going to be loyal to the um, Senate. They're going to be loyal to the general who's paying them. And this really comes up when uh, you get to Marius and Sulla. Uh, Marius uh, seems to be have been a, one of those guys that was going to help the plebeians. But um, when uh, the Senate asks Marius to take care of a problem, Sulla doesn't like it. Sulla feels like the Senate should have asked him. So Sulla decides to march his army towards Rome, threatening to take it. 
and by force. And uh, Marius comes back to try to stop him, but Sulla beats Marius. And so um, anytime you have wealthy people that can own their own army, if they disagree with each other, it's not just a fight, it's a war. So that's going to be Rome's first civil war between Marius and Sulla. And Sulla does everything he can to strengthen the power of the patricians and weaken the plebeians. Um, so he's going to become a dictator and he's going to have total power. Um, so everything that the Senate is trying to do, uh, it's basically because Sulla told them to. Uh, and he and the plebeians after Sulla leaves office is not going to be any better off than they were before the Gracchi brothers started. Uh, then we get to, so those are glaring problems with the Republic. Uh, and they are going to definitely rear their heads here. Um, later on, uh, after Sulla dies, there's going to be three men that are going to kind of want to be in charge in Rome. Uh, Pompey, also called Pompey Magnus or Pompey the Great, he was a brilliant military commander, one of the best Rome had ever had at that point, and um, he was in a good position, wealthy, to take charge. Uh, we have Crassus, who was the wealthiest man in Rome, so he had tons of money, but he didn't have any military experience. And then you have Julius Caesar, who was a... Um, he came from an old patrician family, the Julii family. They believed that they could trace their roots back to the goddess Venus, uh, the goddess of love and beauty. Um, and so that's really all he had, though, was his name. And the fact that they were all patricians, but Julius Caesar was one of the oldest of the patrician families he supposedly came from. And um, he, his family didn't have a whole lot of money because they had made some bad business decisions. And so by the time he comes around, he is, that's all he really has is his name. Uh, Pompey and Crassus, um, they, Crassus wants military experience and Pompey's about done doing military because he has been doing it for a while. Um, but they decide they want to include Julius Caesar in an agreement because, uh, if it's two people in an agreement, if there's a disagreement, you're going to have another civil war between those two. But if there's three people in the agreement, um, if one person steps out of line, the other two are there to help. And so they include Julius Caesar in their um, agreement called a triumvirate. It's the first triumvirate between Julius Caesar, Crassus, and Pompey. Uh, remember, um, tri means three and triumvirate as a political alliance between three people. Um, Crass, they, they split up the territory so that they're not all right on top of each other. So Pompey stays in Italy, and he takes care of Italy and Spain, so he stays in Rome and is kind of leading Rome itself. Crassus goes to what's now Syria, Mesopotamia, and Julius Caesar is given the northern area in Gaul which is uh, today Switzerland and France. And um, Caesar doesn't have an army, though. And Crassus and Caesar are both given territories that Rome doesn't own at the time, but wants to. Uh, Caesar uses the only thing he has to hopefully get an army. 
he says to Pompey, hey, you're not really using your army. Uh, and I realize your wife had just died not too long before this. So I will allow you to marry my daughter, Julia. Well, Julia is probably early 20s, Pompey's 40s, 50s. Um, this wasn't a marriage about love. Usually when um, these important, powerful people get married in almost every civilization, there's a marriage that goes along with it that kind of seals the guys together, seals everybody together. Um, and so it makes them related. So Pompey agrees. And um, so Caesar takes his army and he heads off to Gaul. And um, Crassus dies in battle. So our triumvirate is going to be no more. Uh, Crassus dies in 53 BC. Um, Caesar, while he's in Gaul, he proves to be the best of all of them, military commander-wise. Um, he is constantly outnumbered in Gaul, um, yet he somehow wins. Uh, and he's sending food and treasure back to the plebeians. So the plebeians love him. They see him as a hero. Um but one thing to keep in mind is while Caesar's in Gaul, um, he's there for eight years and he killed him and his men kill over 1 million Gauls while they're there. 1 million people who were just defending their homes. Uh, so Caesar is, gets a message while he's in Gaul, uh, after being there eight years, uh, he, uh, gets a message and some tragic news. He gets a message that his, um, Daughter Julia, who did genuinely grow to love Pompey, um, died in childbirth. And that Caesar's grandson died also. Um, this hits him hard, and it especially hits Pompey hard. Pompey loved Julia, and so now he's lost his child and his wife. But Caesar and Pompey have lost that connection, too. Um their love for Julia kept them from fighting each other. Um, with that done, um, the Senate is getting nervous about Caesar. He's growing more and more powerful, and he's um, not listening to him. They're telling him to come home. He's saying, no, huh, I've got more territory to take. I want to take more and more and more. Um, so finally, they get fed up, and um, Caesar has two choices. He can either come home by himself without his army, and he'd probably be put on trial for for like not listening to the Senate, and probably be convicted and possibly executed, or he can go home with his army. So he goes to his army, and he says, hey, we've been fighting together for eight years, Um I'll do what you want to do. If you want me to go back by myself, I'll do it. If not, uh, you know, let's all go back together and fight for all this stuff we've been fighting for. Caesar's men loved him. He slept in the same conditions they did and ate the horrible food they ate. Uh, and he wasn't one of those commanders that sat back and watched a battle. He was in there in the middle with, with them. Uh, his army agrees. Um, the Senate gives Pompey command of um, an army his armies that were in Spain and they give him power to take care of Caesar. And uh, Caesar starts marching back towards Rome. His army's a well oiled machine. They've been fighting together for eight years. And so it takes them way less time than Pompey anticipated to get back. Um, 
And so Pompey isn't able to get his army together in time. And so he, um, he uh, decides that him and his supporters in the Senate are going to leave Rome and escape and go to Greece and then hopefully get their armies together there and then they can come back to get Caesar. So when Caesar arrives in the gates of Rome, uh, they're open and it's kind of like a parade because the rich people are all cheering or the plebeians are all cheering for him and excited him. There's no fight. Um, the only senators left are the ones that were his friends. Uh, and he can't, he can't stay in Rome very long because he knows that if he gives them a chance, there isn't going to be much opportunity. Um, uh, there, Pompey's a brilliant commander, so he's going to be able to fight. So uh, he's in, he's not in Rome for very long. Uh, he gets to see his wife Calpurnia that he hadn't seen in eight years. Uh, and he has to take off with his army and head to Greece. Well, uh, because they didn't give Pompey and his supporters enough time to get set up, um, they fight at the Battle of Pharsalus in Greece, and it's not even really a battle. Caesar's troops easily defeat Pompey and his troops, and he uh, Caesar catches a lot of senators, and um, he does his odd thing with these enemies. He just lets them go. He says, just promise not to do this again, and I'll let you go back and be senators again. It might come up back to haunt them. Um, Pompey escapes, though, and he heads towards Egypt. Uh, Egypt's in an interesting situation. It's kind of, it's ruled technically by two people, two pharaohs at the time. Um, Cleopatra VII, who was about 18 years old, and uh, her brother Ptolemy, who's about 12. So he's not actually, Ptolemy's not actually running things. He has an advisor um, called a regent, and his name's Bibulus. And Bibulus wants to run things and doesn't want 18-year-old Cleopatra in the way. So he puts her under house arrest, or she can't leave home. Uh, when Caesar arrives, he's greeted by Bibulus when he arrives. he doesn't. Caesar doesn't bring his army with him. Well, Caesar has to go to Egypt because he finds out where Pompey is. But he doesn't bring his army with him because Pompey doesn't have an army with him. He escapes on his own. And when he arrives, he's given two gifts by Bibulus. He's given a ring, and Caesar looks at the ring, and he sees that it is Pompey's ring. So he's thinking, well, I guess Pompey's here, so they caught him, so I don't you know, have to go looking for him. Uh, then they hand him a basket, and in the basket, Caesar lifts the lid, and he sees that it is Pompey's head. Bibulus killed Pompey, hoping to get favor with Caesar, help hopefully to get his support. Uh, it has the exact opposite effect. Caesar is angry. He does not, he did not want Pompey dead because he knew that the plebeians loved him and that the patricians loved him and that he, Caesar, even though he had nothing to do with his death, it would get blamed for it anyway. So, um, Caesar stays in Egypt for a while because he's kind of broke from all this fighting and um, Egypt is very wealthy. And um, so the story goes that as he's sitting in a palace that he's staying in, uh, some servants come carrying a rolled up rug and they set the rug on the ground and they leave. And once they leave, 
the rug unrolls and in it is Cleopatra. Uh, Cleopatra gets a bad reputation in history um, because she kind of does what she has to do to uh, protect Egypt and herself. Um, and uh, Cleopatra needs help. And the most powerful man in the world probably at the time, Julius Caesar, was sitting right there. So Cleopatra and Julius Caesar become friends. And they become such good friends that they have a child together, Caesarian. Remember, um, Caesar's married. And he openly is having an affair with Cleopatra. Uh, so that's going to be something that people in Rome are going to be talking about. Caesar realizes that if he's going to be in charge of Rome, he kind of has to be in Rome. So he heads home. And he brings his girlfriend, Cleopatra, and Caesarian with, her, with him. Uh, when he gets back to Rome, the Senate declares him dictator for life. Um, in 44 BC. And um, so he is going to do, do a bunch of things to help the plebeians and take away power from the Senate. Um, he's going to grant citizenship to people in the Roman lands outside of Italy. So all this land Rome had gained, those people weren't citizens, and Caesar decides to make them citizens. This is going to make them very loyal to him, personally. Uh, he freed up land so that the plebeians had a place to farm, which is exactly what Gaius and Tiberius Gracchus tried to do. And he's going to require these big landowners to hire plebeians to work the fields uh, so that plebeians would have jobs. Ones that didn't get land would have jobs. Uh, that's all designed to help the plebeians. And as we said, the patricians aren't interested in helping the plebeians. Another thing he did was he create has created a um, calendar system that we still use today. In fact, one of the months of the year is named after him, July. Um, so He's making a lot of enemies in the patricians. And since he has put his friends in the Senate, um, he's basically telling them what to do, and they're just doing it. And so a um, couple of senators, Brutus and Cassius in particular, and Brutus, um, Caesar was pretty close to Brutus because Brutus was, um, uh, his father died when he was young, and Caesar kind of um, treated him like a son. Uh he um, decides, Brutus and Cassius decide that they want to save the Republic. And how they can save the Republic, they believe, is by killing Caesar. And so, on March 15th, 44 BC, the Ides of March, beware of the Ides of March, beware of the middle of March, um, Caesar is stabbed on, in the Senate. And... Uh, 60 people were involved in the conspiracy to kill Caesar, but he was stabbed 23 times. And Shakespeare makes a pretty famous uh, version, which um, in his play, The Tragedy of Julius Caesar, that has ended up becoming what people think of as um, how it really happened. But, you know, uh, Shakespeare was trying to sell tickets, not... Um, be historically accurate, but the way he describes is, is that Caesar, um, the last person to stab Caesar was Brutus, 
And uh, Caesar supposedly looks at him and says in Latin, et tu brute, and you Brutus. Uh, well, we think that it may not, he may not have said that. Most people think his last words were something to the effect of, you too, my child. Like this hurt him. Brutus stabbing him hurt him worse than anybody stabbing him. Um, so Caesar dies. And when he dies, um, the people who killed him were trying to save the Republic. And they kill him because they're worried that he was getting too powerful. And uh, these people, um, they didn't have any plan of what to do after Caesar died. So when Caesar dies, all these senators have to get out of town because they're worried what the plebeians are going to do when they find out. And so they all leave town. And when they leave town, um, there's nobody to take charge. So um, Caesar's uh, best friend and uh, good, one of his fa one of his generals, Mark Antony takes charge. Um, Mark Antony uh, wasn't a great leader. But he had the experience at the time, so he steps into the role of being in charge. Uh, but things are going to get complicated when Caesar's will is read out loud. Because when his will is read, Caesar has left all of his fortune to his grandnephew Octavian. Octavian, who's probably uh, 18, 19 at the time. Uh, I have a feeling Caesar thought that he would have more time to work with him and kind of get him ready to be in charge at some point. Uh, but, you know, Caesar dying kind of ruins that. Um, and everyone thought it was going to be left to Mark Antony because he didn't have a Roman son. So um, Mark Antony is not happy. But Caesar goes a step further. He actually adopts Octavian in his will. So Octavian becomes his son, technically, legally. And uh, Octavian's going to use that to get the support of plebeians. Um, he's going to say, my father did this for you. My father did that. Um, and so um, Caesar is not a king, technically. He had the power pretty much of a king, and that was kind of his way of passing power down through his family uh, to his son because he adopts Octavian. And so um, Mark Antony isn't just going to give it up like that. He, we're not quite at a fight, but Octavian is going to, um, Octavian and Mark Antony are going to have a common enemy at first. They are going to try to hunt down Caesar's killers and um, avenge Caesar's death. And within three years, every one of the people that stab Caesar will themselves be stabbed. Oh, they will die. Um, some of them by their own hand through suicide. Some of them, um, will be killed by Octavian and Mark Antony's men. Um, Cleopatra, when Caesar's dead, she takes off back to Egypt where things were safer for her. Uh, and in next week's podcast, we will discuss the second triumvirate and what happened with Mark Antony and Octavian. Uh, if you listen to my special episode uh, with the breaking news on Caesar's death, um, I said there is a chance for extra credit. So again, a reminder, if you on your bubble sheet tomorrow, on the very bottom where it's all blank, if you write the phrase Ides of March, I-D-E-S of March, O-F, M-A-R-C-H, Ides of March. If 
you write that on your paper, you'll get a five-point bonus on your quiz. Do not share this information with anybody. Keep this to yourself so that you get the points and they don't. Because I'm testing to see what, how far-reaching the podcast is and how many people are listening to it. Well, I hope you learned something. Um, yeah, have a good week, and um, I'll talk to you next week. Hello, and welcome to Mr. Sorensen's Weekly World History Podcast. This week, we will look at the time period called the Pax Romana, the fall of the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, and the Great Schism. Starting with Rome's first emperor, Augustus Caesar, and lasting about 200 years, the Pax Romana, or Roman peace, was the time period that the Roman Empire was at its height of wealth and power. They had no civil wars, and the only fighting was the Romans beating up people to add more territory to their empire. During the Pax Romana, the empire nearly doubled its size. There were some changes politically, economically, and socially that are going to make this time period so stable and successful. Politically, they created a civil service of government jobs that provided jobs and money for many Romans. They also are going to develop a uniform rule of law that's going to help make justice more equal throughout the empire. So it didn't matter where you lived, the laws applied the same to everybody. Economically, they are going to establish a uniform system of currency or money. That would mean that it didn't matter where you were in the empire, they were going to be using the same coins, which is going to make sense uh, so people can freely trade. The Roman army's power and might will also help to guarantee safe travel and trade on the roads, which will lead to an increase in trade. These changes will promote prosperity and stability for Roman merchants throughout the empire. Socially, the empire will return stability to social classes. They're also going to increase the emphasis on the family so life became more stable and prosperous and families could stay together. During the Pax Romana, art and culture flourished as new ideas were introduced to the empire from conquered areas and they could spread apart the, uh, spread across the empire pretty easily. After the five great emperors, which were from 96 AD to 180 AD, the Roman Empire is going to begin a, its slow decline. It won't happen overnight, but rough, rough times are ahead. Some of the internal threats or threats from inside the empire that are going to cause it to start breaking down are weak Roman leaders, famine, which is not having enough food to eat, disease spreading through the empire, and a weakened economy. Bribery and corruption in the Senate weakened Rome as it suffered through the series of bad emperors who are going to weaken it even further because they can't handle some of the other problems that are going to come. At a time where communication across distances was difficult, the Roman Empire became too big to govern effectively. So they couldn't easily handle problems at its borders. The constant warfare required heavy military spending, which is going to take money away from other places it may have been needed. The Roman army became overstretched 
and they needed more and more soldiers just to try to keep things together. The government couldn't help out the poor who were losing their jobs to cheaper slave labor because it was spending so much on the military. By relying on slave labor, there was a, it increased the gap of wealth between the rich and the poor. The rich grew wealthy from their slaves while the poor couldn't even find work. Finally, the emperor Diocletian saw that the problems are just too big for one man to handle. So he's going to divide the empire into two with both halves having their own emperor. The west is going to be ruled from Rome and the east, which will be known as the Byzantine Empire, will be ruled from Constantinople, which is today Istanbul, Turkey. Then in 312 AD, a Byzantine emperor named Constantine is going to convert to Christianity. This is going to make Christianity legal in the empire, and it's going to allow it to spread throughout the empire. This is going to eventually allow Christianity to become the dominant religion in Europe to this day. Then in 325 AD, Emperor Constantine got together all the Christian bishops of the Roman Empire to the first conference of the early Christian church. It had as the most important result the first uniform Christian doctrine called the Nicene Creed. This means they got together and decided the basics of what all Christians will believe. The Nicene Creed is still said by Christians in churches throughout the world. This is going to bring together the Christian church under the Pope called the Roman Catholic Church. External threats or threats from outside the empire is going to help push it over the edge too. Germanic tribes from Europe moved in to attack a weakened Western Roman Empire. These included groups like the Goths, the Visigoths, and Huns. So the weakened empire, Western Empire will piece by piece fall apart as Germanic tribes begin to take it apart. In 476 AD, the city of Rome was captured, and the Western Empire came to an end. The territory in the West will be split up among the different Germanic tribes. The eastern part of the empire will continue on for another 1,000 years and will become known as the Byzantine Empire. The Byzantine Empire in included what is now Greece, Asia Minor, which is now Turkey, and Egypt. The people of the Byzantine Empire will mostly speak Greek, not Latin like the Romans. Their architecture, or buildings, included architectural features of the Greeks, like the columns, and the Romans, like domes and arches. The most famous and amazing example of Byzantine architecture is the huge church called the Hagia Sophia. It was built in 537 AD by the Byzantine Emperor Justinian in the capital of Constantinople, which is now Istanbul, Turkey. It includes Roman domes and arches on the outside and Greek columns on the inside. Constantinople was a good place to build a capital because it is on a peninsula, and so it's surrounded on three sides by water. So that means that it could only be attacked by land in one spot, which will make it really easy to defend. Constantinople is also at a crossroads. It is right between the Mediterranean Sea and Black Sea, so it connects those seas. It is also almost the exact point where Europe and Asia connect, 
and it's pretty close to where Africa is. So it's like a crossroads of three continents, Europe, Africa, and Asia. That's going to make it a prime spot for trade because people will not have to go if they if somebody in France wants silk, they don't have to go all the way to China to get it. They can they can go to Constantinople and then the Chinese can go to Constantinople and trade. So you'd be able to get products from all over the um, from Asia, Africa, and Europe all in one spot instead of having to go to separate places. So it's going to become an important trade hub. Justinian became emperor of the Byzantine Empire in 527 AD. He was a very strong leader who tried to reunite the eastern and western halves of the Roman Empire. Although he is at least kind of successful, when he dies, the western empire goes back in the hands of the Germanic tribes. So it never sticks. It doesn't stay together. The Byzantine Empire's government was set up exactly the same as the Roman system. They had an emperor on top with two consuls and a senate who could give the emperor advice. Ultimately, all the power rested in the hands of the emperor, though. He, um, the emperor, the uh, Byzantines figured the Roman system was working. Well, they thought it was working. Uh, so why broke it if it's not fixed? Uh, why fix it if it's not broken? So they're going to continue on that system. Justinian created a new position for his wife. The new position is called Empress. While he was gone fighting wars to try to reunite the Western lands, he gave her equal power to make decisions for the whole empire. So, he, so she's going to be a woman with a ton of power in a time period where women aren't going to have a whole lot of rights. One thing she tries to do with her power is to improve the situation for women in the empire. Under the old Roman law, women were considered property of their father or husband. Empress Theodora is going to allow women to own property, make a contract and will, and bring a lawsuit. She's also going to make it illegal for a husband to beat his wife. Women are not quite going to be equal, but they are going to be better off than they were before. By the time Justinian became emperor, the Roman law system had been around for over a thousand years, and no one had ever gone through all the laws that were made to organize them and make sure they all make sense. For example, laws requiring the people to worship the old Roman gods like Jupiter would not make sense to have for an empire that worshipped Christianity. So Justinian got together a bunch of judges and lawyers from throughout his empire and had them look at all the laws. In 528 AD, they decided to combine and simplify the laws in the empire. This set of laws became known as the Justinian Code. It was made up of over 4,000 laws and it became the basis of the law systems throughout Europe. For around 700 years after the Council of Nicene, most European Christians were united as part of the Roman Catholic Church under their leader, the Pope. In 1045 AD, the Byzantine Emperor and the Pope started having disagreements over church teachings. The Pope believed that he had the last say on the teachings of the church and that he was God's representative on earth, whereas the Byzantine Empire believed that it was him that was God's true representative and he should be one, the one making the decisions on the teachings of the church. This is going to cause a split between the Eastern and Western churches that will be called the Great Schism. The Eastern Church will be called the Eastern Orthodox Church and will be centered in Constantinople with its leader being the Patriarch. 
The patriarch will be chosen, chosen by the Byzantine Empire emperor and will answer to the emperor. The Eastern Orthodox Church will also ban icons, which are paintings or statues of Jesus and other figures from the Bible. The Western Church will be called the Roman Catholic Church, and it will be centered in Rome and will continue with the Pope as its leader. The Roman Catholic Church will continue to allow icons in its churches. The churches will never reunite, and the divide pretty much happens along the lines of how the Roman Empire split. Well, I hope this helps, and I will talk to you on the next episode. Ciao, Bella. Ciao, Bella.